This program is released under a Creative Commons license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. This is Christ the Center, Episode 45. Today we speak with Peter Lilback about Calvin and the development of covenant theology. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey, and I'm joined today by Jim Cassidy, who is pastor at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ringo's, New Jersey. We also have with me Nick Batzig, who is interim pastor at Christ the King PCA in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. And our guest this afternoon is Dr. Peter Lilback, who is the president of Westminster Theological Seminary as well as being Professor of Historical Theology. He's also the author of a book entitled The Binding of God, Calvin's Role in the Development of Covenant Theology, which is going to be our topic of discussion today. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hi, Camden. Good afternoon. afternoon. We're really interested to talk today about uh, something very uh, close to many of us, and it's Calvin, John Calvin, our forefather of the faith in many ways, and his particular role in the historical development of covenant theology. Uh, Dr. Lilbeck, I was uh, very interested as I picked this book up and, and started reading uh, just to see you trace uh, the development of covenant, or, or as we might say at this time, federal theology through time. Um, just to get us started, uh, how appropriate, uh, maybe in broad strokes, is it to talk about Calvin as a covenant theologian before we actually get into any Specifics is that anachronistic, or do we start to see the seeds of what has become covenant theology, even back in the 16th century? Well, obviously, definitions help us to make that uh, appellation correct or inappropriate. If you mean by covenant theology a clearly worked out federal scheme of salvation being addressed uh, to a prelapsarian or a prefall covenant of works you can't see Calvin in that explicit format, and therefore you'd have to say, well, then he can't be viewed as a covenant theologian. If you define covenant theology more specifically in terms of a hermeneutical method that sees the Bible as one continued unfolding of history under the idea of Christ who is to come, the Christ who is in history, the Christ who has come and will come again, and the Bible is one book about his redemption, the Old and New Covenant really being more deeply committed by a covenant of salvation, a covenant of grace, then it's totally appropriate and necessary to call Calvin a covenant theologian or one who advocated that. In fact, maybe I could take it a step further and say that in the Reformed tradition, clearly from Zwingli on, the notion of the Bible being one book united by a essentially covenantal view of redemption at least as one of its preferential ways of describing soteriology, is absolutely the case. So covenant theology really finds its uh, emergence with Zwingli, if you define it in the sense I've just described. Hmm. Now, uh, prior to Zwingli, what, what was the covenant, how was the covenant thought of in late medieval society and theology, and how did that eventually find its way into uh, the Reformation? Well, obviously, the Bible talks a lot about the idea of a covenant, the Hebrew word berith mm-hmm. is uh, translated in the uh, Latin version by Jerome in his Vulgate as the testamentum. And from that, using Jeremiah 31, we have the Old Testamentum and the New Testamentum. 
more literally, if uh, Jerome was keeping the Hebrew in mind, he could have said it's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we know that our Bible is divided in covenantal or testamentary language. So that was well known, understood. Now, with the uh, development of covenant ideas in terms of theology, something extraordinary happened in the context of the uh, development of penance theology. As the monastic communities began to develop their communal life, they recognized when one of the brothers fell into sin and he needed to be restored, there needed to be some kind of a process that would be at work. And so in that process of penance or doing something to make amends for your sin, different ideas of how grace was administered began to be developed. And out of that, over the millennia, maybe a millennia is too long, let's say at least centuries, the idea began to distinguish between two types of grace. One kind of grace was what we would call congruent grace, and another type was called condign grace, meritum de congruo and meritum de condigno. Mm. That distinction basically comes down to what every student knows, the difference between getting a perfect score on a paper and getting an A when you missed half of all the answers, but it was because the professor graded on a curve. And so the idea of meritum de congru or, or congruent merit was described as a covenant by a man named Gabriel Beale, in particular, a late medieval theologian. And what he basically said is, facientibus quad insa est deus non de negat gratiam. To the one who does what is in himself, God does not withhold grace. In other words, you do your best, God says it's good enough, and he's satisfied, and you're forgiven, and you're blessed, and you have merit, and you're on your way to heaven, and that is his covenant. Mm -hmm. Now, there are others that were perfect, condign merit, like Mary, or the saints, or the martyrs, or whatever, and they actually had more than enough good works, and that helps to create what becomes known as the treasury of merit and all these other things. But that was the covenantal theology that was operative in Martin Luther's medieval era, was he was wrestling with the idea of, where do I find a merciful God? One of the things he struggled with is, how do I know, even if God's grading on a curve with congruent merit, how do I know I've done the best that's in me? I know God is gracious, but what if I still didn't do good enough, even when he's being kind to me, and then I'm rejected? So this merit system, which was based on a covenantal structure of congruent grace, actually was uh, a way in which indulgences could operate, the treasury of merit, doing good works, and all those things. And so when the Reformation comes on the scene, one of the things that we'll have to come to grips with is how much of this covenant idea can we keep and what must be jettisoned? So it really was very closely bound up with merit theology. So that's kind of where it was in the late medieval setting. One last point. Augustine, being more intensely biblical than many of the medievalists, did have an appreciation for the fact that the covenant of grace as a redemptive idea theologically could even be seen to be at work in the Old Testament going back to the patriarchs. So there's an element as Augustinian theology is rediscovered along with a thoroughgoing biblical theology by the reformers that they could see that Augustine was thinking in that holistic sense that the Bible is a covenantal book where grace goes all the way through history, right back to the patriarchs, all the way up to the apostles. Hmm. Now, how did Luther advance any, any of that conception? Did he take any of those themes and, and, and uh, develop them 
uh, prior to Calvin? Yes. One of the things we do know is as we look at the uh, exegetical works of the pre-Reformational Luther, such as his Dictatus Salterium, his lectures on the Psalms, he had become a doctor of Scripture. He was given the privilege of reading and developing what the Bible teaches along with all of the great uh, views of other uh, theologians in the church's history. And we can find that he was going back and forth between ideas that suggest the covenant is of grace and it brings forgiveness, along with other passages as he's writing where he's trying to look at it more on that Gabriel Beale model about merit and doing your best. And so you can actually see, as you work through Luther's comments, a conflicted Luther, where at times he says, wow, that's the Reformation over here. No, no, that's late medieval theology. And he never put it together as one holistic piece. So when he has his termerlabeness, his tower experience, where he says, I was altogether born again, as he's reflecting on that idea, the, the righteousness of God, and no longer being terrified that God is righteous and judges sinners, but there's a righteousness that flows from God to sinners through faith. And he begins to appreciate justification uh, through faith, and the Reformation idea comes along. He begins to jettison very strongly the language of covenant. He sees it as meritorious. But he still, on the other hand, is wrestling with, is there a way in which the covenant idea is still at work in the Christian life? And the early Luther, for a period of time, seems to try to find a way to take covenantal ideas and bring it into his theology. But pretty early on, as he's reformationally inclined and developing his thinking, he moves much more in the direction of a unilateral understanding of the relationship of God and man, taking a nuance of the word bereth or testamentum or fidus or pactum, the various Greek and Latin and Hebrew words for covenant, and he develops what we could call a testamentary theology, where it's grace flowing monergistically and exclusively monergistically from God so that we are always receptive and there's no sense in which we respond to that in a covenantal relationship. Rather, we receive the promise. So he would say, when you're baptized, you don't give anything to God, you receive. When you receive the Eucharist, it's all given to you and you receive. So when you get righteousness, it's all given to you and you receive. He was fearful, or as he wrestled with it, that a reciprocal or responsive or a mutual or a bilateral character of the covenant might actually be moving into a rejection of the alien righteousness imputed to us in the forensic character of justification, that we're actually receiving something. He was afraid that merit would creep back in. So testamentary ideas eclipses covenantal ideas and Luther the Reformer. Dr. Loback, um with with regard to this idea of merit in Luther and in Calvin, um, I think we're interested to know your thoughts, uh, how you've, what you've discovered, especially in Calvin, um, in regard to what is now commonly known as the covenant of works, um, and how the merit, the idea of merit, would play into that. Was it in Calvin? Was it in Luther? Um, I know your book speaks to this. What thoughts do you have for us? Well, when you begin to see Calvin coming on the scene, one of the things that I think is helpful is to put him into his historical context. Calvin is consciously a reformer, but he's a second-generation reformer. He is 
consciously building on multiple streams of reformation. He appreciates Luther tremendously, but he is not slavishly committed to Luther. He appreciates Zwingli and the German Reformation, but and the German-Swiss Reformation, but he is not a Zwinglian ex- exactly. He is close to Melanchthon. He's quote, close to Bullinger. He also has this uh, French Reformation influence of Jacques Lefebvre d'Etape and others uh, that are already working on biblical ideas of righteousness through faith. So he is a what what I would say more of a humanistic reformer. He has been blessed with the study of law. He's been blessed with the study of of Greek and Latin, and he sees the reformational streams from other places. And he is not committed to any one man's approach. He's trying to do his best to unfold what the Bible is teaching. So he looks at things, uh, I think, in a more independent way, even though deeply influenced by all of these men, but he tries to come up with his own method. And in doing so, one of his novel, I think, understandings is trying to, to put together in the history of redemption what was God doing with Adam before the fall? What was the relationship that was there? Now, a hint that I think helps us is that one of the key ideas that Calvin will say in his teaching is that wherever there is a covenant, there will always be a sacrament. There will always be a sign that seals that covenant to the people that are experiencing God's covenantal blessing. Mm -hmm. For example, he'll say Noah has, if you will, the rainbow. And the rainbow is a sacramental part of the Noahic covenant, so that when the rainbow is seen, there's a promise that is claimed we participate in. Obviously, circumcision, uh, the Lord's Supper, baptism, the Passover, all of these things fit. So one of the things that Calvin does is he's looking at the pre-fall economy of Adam and the, uh, God relating together. He says there's this tree of life, and he describes that as the sacrament that Adam experiences in his relationship with God. Well, the sacrament is a reflection of the covenant. Calvin will say when you have a sacrament, you have a covenant. When you have a covenant, you have a sacrament. So if you have a sacrament in the garden with God and Adam, then that means you have a covenant. And there is a place where Calvin will actually say the covenant that God made with Adam. So we know that he was beginning to think in the categories of a covenant before the fall. Now, the next step, and this is a specific question that you raised, Nick, is that, well, what, what about merit then? Is there a meritorious covenant here? Because clearly... Uh, you could say, well, Adam had never sinned, and what he was doing by doing works was earning the right to continue to stand in this covenant. And so is this a covenant of merit? Reformed theologians historically have actually debated the question whether there was merit in the garden or not. Is that an appropriate concept? After wrestling with this on and off through the years, I finally concluded that in Calvin's language, there is it is improper to use the word merit of man's relationship with God uh, in his actions. Here's why I would say that. First of all, Calvin seems to suggest that when God created man in the garden, there was nothing that man could do to deserve that. He had no right to do it. In fact, in one of his commentaries, he actually says there seems to be a triple form of election that God exercises, 
a trip. We've heard of double election or double predestination. Mm-hmm. So there's a triple one. <laughs> there's some who are, who are destined for eternal life, some that are destined for God's wrath and judgment to show his, his sovereign power and holiness. And he says there's also a third. And I said, what in the world was that? He said God selected human beings to be his image bearers and no other of his creatures. Huh. But we are predestined, to, if you will, to be human beings as image bearers of God. And so what Calvin is driving at is that man's being man in the garden is already a recipient of pure grace. Whatever he does is grace. The fact that there's a covenant that man can relate to God, man had nothing to do with it. That is grace. The, the tree of life that's there, representing, as he says, Christ and his relationship, union with Christ, benefits of, of the Redeemer, and at this point, the, his Creator who is good. All of these things are ultimately gifts of grace. So Calvin will ultimately say there's nothing that man can do to merit from God. But what he does instead is he seems to have the idea of lesser grace to greater grace. That as we go through the history of salvation, we can see that there's a greater expression of grace at each case. And at no point does merit seem to intrude, not even in the garden, as far as I can tell in Calvin. Right. Thank you. Now, how would uh, some of well, this conception of Calvin relate to um, modern developments in federal vision theology? Well, I would say let's let's put it more immediately into the classic uh, Murray Klein debate at Westminster, just mm-hmm. to start with for a moment. We know that uh, Meredith Klein was very concerned to keep law covenant primary. That was one of his issues, and for. I think, as you look at Murray, he was more concerned to keep Grace Covenant primary. So you can see that uh, if you listen to my historical um, exposition, both of these traditions can find people who are great theologians who would model that intramural debate within federal theology at the beginning. So you could say, on the one hand, uh, we could have uh, Turretin, who I think is comfortable to speak of merit in the pre-fall economy, and that would give Klein a place to stand. You've got Calvin, who seems to emphasize everything in the garden is grace. Well, that gives Murray a place to stand. And so uh, Murray wants to speak in a radical biblical theological way of the Adamic administration, because he says the word covenant is not yet used here. Well, in our confessional tradition, in our catechism and confession, Westminster Standards, we find covenant is used and it's proleptic in the sense, but it's derivative. We can see the elements of the covenant, we can apply it there. So there's been a historical debate about how the covenant works as we unfold it. And as we come to the federal vision theology, which is uh, obviously grows out of these kinds of intramural debates, reform theology, and all these things, I don't want to suggest that I am a master of the debate here. But what I do think uh, does happen is that Calvin, as a theologian, was very conscious of what we call the duplex gratiam, the double grace of the covenant. You think of Jeremiah 31, it says, I will write my law upon your heart, and I will forgive your sins and remember them no more. The suggestion here is that there is a renewal of the heart, the new heart that is given to us. That is uh, what we could call uh, regeneration and out flowing from that is sanctification. And then there's the righteousness that we have that is expressed by the forgiveness of our sins. As sin is removed from us, 
that we are now forgiven of our sin, it's removed from us. So the idea that we have two great benefits of grace, Luther was worried about the idea of the actual obedience of the believer being righteous. This gets us into the great debate between the two uses of the law or the three uses of the law. Can we, in fact, do good works that are pleasing to God because we are, in fact, already justified people and the Holy Spirit's letting us do things and God can look at our good works and say, good, they're good. All right, so you can see that once you move into not a justification paradigm of salvation, which might be the most narrow way you can view Luther's theology, it's all about justification. And sanctification is just getting used to the fact that faith is what you live every day, and you're justified. You can take more of the the dual-benefit approach and say there's the Holy Spirit's work that's not justification, it's different from it, but it's also what God is doing. Then the question is, how do those two benefits come together? Before I address, if you will, federal theology, let me tell you how I think Calvin puts those two benefits together. Uh, He uses these phrases. First of all, he says justification and sanctification are given simultaneously. He believes that God, in giving us saving grace, brings us into his covenant, and we are justified, and we are also given the gifts of sanctification. Now, he will make it clear. One is complete, and the other is a process, but they are simultaneous. Secondly, he will say, not only are they simultaneously given, they are inseparably given. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can't have one without the other. You must have them clearly in place. And then a third thing that he wants to make is not only are they simultaneously given and they are inseparably given, but they must be logically ordered. Now, this is where the critical point comes to play. What I mean by logically ordered is that sanctification always depends upon justification. It is never the other way around that justification is depending on sanctification. For Calvin, if you make that move, he would follow Luther and say you've destroyed all assurance and you've left man in the state of not uh, being secure in his salvation because if you are dependent anyway on the process that you're making, sometimes the process is incomplete, it falls, it fails, the works are sinful, we are not there. But if it's the other way around, sanctification, which is simultaneous and inseparable, but it's dependent on justification, we can see that our good works can be forgiven, that they can be completed by Christ's righteousness. They are enabled by the outflow of the Spirit of Christ because we have been justified, and as his children, we are being made into new people, and this adopting grace that works together sanctification. So now, having said that, the ways in which we see justification and sanctification working together, one an act, one a process, simultaneously given, inseparably connected, but logically ordered. Calvin will actually use the phrase, what is subordinate is not contrary. So the righteousness of sanctification is a subordinate righteousness to the righteousness of justification. Therefore, it doesn't compete in the presence of God. It is something that's derivative and subordinate. Now, what I'm fearful of is that the federal vision relates the two benefits of salvation to be equally ultimate, and that there's a sense sometimes that by your keeping covenant, you are guaranteeing that you have the right to justification, that sanctification becomes 
to be the logically dominant gift instead of the subordinate mm. gift. That is my worry and my fear when I hear the federal vision. It wants to emphasize covenant-keeping, your sacramental life, your presence in the community of the Church, all the things that we ought to do as individuals in covenant-keeping, and it makes justification somehow dependent on that. And that is to turn the covenant on its head, and that's what Calvin does not allow. Now, the reaction to federal vision theology can become Lutheran and just cut out all the covenant-keeping language and say, no, no, it's all justification. But then we've destroyed the covenant, which has two benefits, and both of them are necessary. I think our Westminster standards actually give us some great guidance here when it says, the faith that justifies us is never alone. We're only justified by faith. Mm -hmm. Faith alone justifies. But it's never alone, but it's always accompanied by all saving graces. So we get this notion that there is a real uh, accompaniment of sanctification. And then the uses of the law and gospel, our confession will tell us, do sweetly agree. In other words, before you come to Christ, law versus gospel are enemies. That's very much what Luther taught and the reform system would agree. Mm -hmm. Luther seems to teach that law and gospel are always at odds with each other, even for the Christian. But in the reform system, with the duplex gratium, with the double benefits of grace, what we see is that law and gospel now sweetly comply because we become covenant keepers derivatively from our being justified. And Calvin actually then introduces another theological word here, and that's the word adoption. And he says the difference between adoption and how God deals with us, and justification, how God deals with us, is a difference between a strict judge and a criminal, and a loving father and a son. When you come to a criminal court, and you have fallen short, and the judge opens the law, and he judges you by your life, he finds you guilty. Now, when you're justified, what happens is that you have nothing to bring as a righteousness before God, and he clothes you in the righteousness of the law as a gift. You have nothing of your own. But when you are justified, God, if you will, takes you down to family court from criminal court. <laughs> and now you stand before a new judge who's your father. And your father says, my son, I look at your life, and I see that it's not all that it needs to be. I want you to know I do forgive you of your incompleteness. In fact, I'm working with you that you measure up. In fact, I appreciate your infant steps to do the right thing. They're not enough, but they are valuable to me, and I love you for them, and I want you to grow. So Calvin then wants to see sanctification, the call to holiness, covenant-keeping, not in a legalistic demand, well, you never measure up, keep trying to be holy, but rather, as sons and daughters of the living God, he is nurturing us into obedience in grace, but never losing sight that he's a holy father. He knows when we're not trying to do what we're supposed to do. We still need to be forgiven. We still need to have the righteousness of Christ clothing us, imputed to our account. But because we are sons and daughters, we are beginning the process of following him. We begin to grow in grace. And so Calvin, into the covenant context, introduces the wonderful idea of adoption, which is how God helps us in his mercy to actually become who we ought to be as we grow in the Lordship of Christ. So he will actually use the language, the covenant of adoption or the covenant of mercy, which is a way in which he bridges in the covenant of grace uh, the dual benefits, the covenant of justification benefits and the covenantal benefit of sanctification that are linked together in our lives through what he calls the covenant of mercy 
or the covenant of adoption. Um, Dr. Loback, um, speaking, following up on what you just said, uh, do you find in Calvin uh, the teaching on paternal and judicial forgiveness, the idea that uh, the, the great struggle there that you know Christ forgives um, all of our sins by his death on the cross and his work, um, his saving work, the Historia Saluta, Salutis, and then in how he deals with us as a father, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Do, am I, is that a clear question? I'm, I'm trying to follow up on what you just said about how he deals with us legally and how he deals with us paternally. Is that, would you be comfortable with that, and is that found in Calvin? Yeah, I would put it this way. So maybe someone could ask the question this way. Why do we need a confession of sin on Sunday morning if we're already justified people? I thought we're already forgiven. Okay, that would be a way to put it really right into the uh, doxological or liturgical setting. Yes. And the answer is that, yes, when you are a justified sinner, your sin is forgiven past, present, and future. In terms of having been delivered from wrath to grace, you are now living as a son of God. You are one of his children. But you know what? Just because you're the son of the Father... That doesn't mean that you can run through the house when the new carpet is in with muddy feet and put your feet up on the brand new coffee table and have mom and dad not care. It's say, wait a second, you know, you have to live by the rules of the household. It's not a question of whether you're a son. You are a son. Now you are forgiven and you're welcome here, but now you need to live in the relationship that God establishes and that restoration must take place where you were once outside, stranger from the alien, an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, now you're fellow covenant citizens. But as fellow covenant citizens, you need to live according to the fatherly love of the household. And so when we confess our sin in a worship service, we're basically saying, if we are believers, Lord, I already know that this sin that I've committed is not going to send me to hell. You, It's amazing that you have redeemed me. But Lord, I have cheapened your love and your grace by not worshiping you, and I've let myself turn from your truth, and I've soiled my, my, my feet with the world. I need my feet to be washed. And you can put in the foot-washing context of John 13 here, I don't need a whole bath. I've been cleansed, but my feet are still dirty. They've been in contact with the world, and I need to be cleansed. And that's the ongoing forgiveness of the fatherly or paternal character because the judicial forgiveness of sins has already taken place. I've been delivered from wrath to life. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but there must continue to be cleansing of sin and confession of sin and restoration for those who are in Christ Jesus, because, as the writer of Hebrews says, we have not yet been made perfect. When we come to heaven, we come to the souls of men who have been made perfect, but we're not there yet. Yes, that's I, good. I have a, a follow-up question, um, just for for clarification, uh, Doctor Lobeck. You you had said uh, about justification and sanctification as the simultaneous benefits of um, being in Christ or in the covenant, and then you had said that sanctification was subordinate to justification. So far, no problems. That's that's clear, and and, and right in my mind. When you say subordinate, however, do, do you mean a logical subordination or a chronological one? In other words, um, when we say that justification and sanctification are benefits that we receive at once and at the same time as being united to Christ and brought into the covenant, um, 
do you have in view there then uh, definitive sanctification? I mean, because obviously progressive sanctification is something which chronologically comes, um, uh, you know, after the point of being justified. Um, I don't know if that question makes sense, but I'm just looking for uh, clarification in my own mind. That's a great question. Well, here's the first thing I would say, that when John Murray develops the language of definitive sanctification, he wanted to say there's a sense in which we can already be called sanctified, even though we're far from having gone through the process of being sanctified. He doesn't want to deny there's a process. But the Bible's language somehow says you are washed, you are sanctified. We have already become holy in some sense. And I think what that is getting at is what I think Calvin would similarly argue for, is that when we get redeeming grace from God and we're brought into his covenant life, we are justified, and there's a sense in which holiness is a principle has already begun. We are within the holy people of God, even though we have a long way to go. But we are now a sanctified person. We have been removed from the world, placed into communion with Christ, in covenant relationship with him, and there's a sense in which we're already there. That is the simultaneous character of it. And that simultaneous reality is what definitive sanctification lets us say. We are always somehow belonging to the Lord. We've been removed from the world. We've passed from death to life. We've been, there's been a transaction from wrath to grace. We are Lord's people. He is our Lord, but we have a process that we must go through. Okay, And that definitive character does not deny in any sense the process of becoming holy and repentance and restoration and renewal and praying the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, forgive us our debts, all these things. This is our process we're going to go through. So I want to say that we don't want to deny for a moment the simultaneous beginnings of God's redemptive grace as the dual benefits of the covenant. But now having said that, once we begin to look at ourselves before God, Calvin would argue, never look at your holiness as a basis of your assurance. Because the moment you do that, two things happen. One is you begin to cheapen the work of Christ because you think you're doing it and you've forgotten the cross. Secondly, you begin to diminish the reality of the abiding sinfulness of your sin, even in your best of good works. Because you're saying, look how good I'm doing, and you're not seeing that the progress you're making. These are just childlike steps when God has called you to be a mountain climber, and you're not even close to getting to the top. You're still taking toddler steps. Uh, it's only when you get to glory that you'll really be able to see perfection in your life. Maturity is the goal that we're aiming toward, and we want to see it. So Calvin wants us to be conscious that we depend on justification always because, one, salvation is all of the Lord. It's all of Christ. Our best good works are gifts that are given by grace, and even when we live them and do them, they are always incomplete, filled with failures and sins of all kinds, and they must be forgiven still. And so we don't want to cheapen God's grace nor diminish the reality of our fallenness. The way we keep that balance in place is by keeping our eyes fixed on Christ's wonderful gift of righteousness. But in doing that, we see all of his gifts, which include a new nature, the pouring out of the Spirit, the beginning of sanctification. And by the fact that even the newest of Christians is already sanctified in the sense he's been delivered from the world. He is a sense he's definitively the Lord's and has become holy. Now he needs to become who he is. He needs to learn to walk that out 
in the real challenges of godliness and daily obedience. Uh, Dr. Lobeck, just have a, one more question here for you concerning back to the book, The Binding of God. Um, I, I just found this book to be extremely helpful. Um, I, I, I kind of get this, the sense that you were um, back in, uh, when you wrote your, your dissertation, and uh, particularly I'm thinking of your 1981 article, which finds its way um, into this book as well. Uh, you're kind of doing the Mueller thing before Mueller was doing it, um, very nicely uh, trying to draw the connections uh, between the 17th century and 16th century um, and, and putting to bed some of the myths that were out there uh, pitting Calvin against the Calvinists. And, and so in that sense, it's um, been such a helpful book and, and work for me uh, to understand the, the history of theology. Um, now, the book has received some criticisms um, from some that uh, have said that, well, it, it sounds like that there's a conflating, and this is tying into what we said already. I think you've, you've made yourself pretty clear, but I, I do want to give you this opportunity to to defend uh, what's in the book is that um, some have said that it conflates uh, faith and works, uses language like um, uh, good works as the instrumental cause of the possession of eternal life. I'm thinking of page 207. Um, and uh, sounds, some would say, uh, like Norman Shepard uh, and uh, things like that. Those are the criticisms I've heard out there. Um, would you be able to, to give a uh, a response to some of those criticisms? Well, first of all, thank you for saying that I, I got this going before Mueller did. That's <laughs> a very, I think that's a high compliment. Thank you it very is. much for saying that. Yes. Uh, I want you to know that just on a, a historical anecdotal point, I was actually in a, a Dallas seminary class. As you know, I discovered my Reformed faith uh, indirectly by studying at a dispensational seminary and realized I was too reformed to stay there and I needed to find out who I was, so that's why I came to Westminster. <laughs> but I was literally reading the volume of Karl Barth on the doctrine of reconciliation, and he was making a strong statement about how the covenant theology that shows up in Reformed theology was an attempt to blunt predestinarianism. And I thought, my goodness, is that the truth? because I had just begun to read a little bit in the Westminster Standards, and I realized they had a chapter on the covenant, and they had a chapter on the divine decrees, and I thought, don't these people realize that these are supposed to be opposite ideas? How did they end up in the same confession of faith? And that was the seed of what has become my dissertation. I was trying to figure out, well, what are the roots of covenant theology? How does it relate to predestinarianism? So I was trying to figure it all out, and I discovered that Calvin, who everybody knows teaches predestination, is saturated with the covenant, and I was startled. And no one had really taken time to put those pieces together, and that's eventually what I did. Now, what I want you to know specifically is I went through Calvin. I really tried to do an inductive model. I didn't have any paradigm that I was trying to force on Calvin. I just said... I want to know what the data is. I want to find his uses of these words. I want to read it through. I want his ideas and arguments to stand. And I'm not saying that I got it all right, but I want you to know I did not come with an ax to grind. I was just trying to say, well, what did Calvin say about the covenant? And, and I tried to do my closest effort to get an exhaustive study on how he develops his vocabulary and his words. And that what you have in the binding of God is the only way I could make sense of how it all fits together. Obviously, Calvin 
never created a, an official covenant theology. This is his DNA. It's, I think he read Bullinger's treatise on De Testamento, the very first monograph on the covenant, and he brought that into his thinking, and he just then started doing exegesis with these ideas, and, and he developed as he went along, and this is what it comes to. Now, along the way, he does appeal, and that should be no surprise, to some of the well-known uh, vocabulary of medieval theolog theological discur discursive methods. They had been tools that he'd been aware of, probably been trained with in some cases. So the, the phrase of, of sanctification being subordinate to justification, that when something is subordinate, it is not contrary. That is a dictum that comes from medieval theology. The idea of it being an instrumental cause, well, that's language that flows again from medieval theological discussion. Calvin did not want to use that language as his main modus operandi of theology. He was trying to create a biblical theological method, but he recognized that there are logical concepts that when you do theology, you cannot run from, and that you need to use helpful paradigms of logical thought when you're dealing with difficult aspects. So the language of what is subordinate, subordinate is not contrary, or a movement from the lesser to the greater. All these ideas are logical structures that he says helps us to see how pieces fit together. So the terminology that I use in that chapter, I got out of Calvin. People may not like it. They can attack me for saying it, but I didn't say, well, Calvin has to say this, and I want him to say it because I have an agenda. It's more like this comes right out of a passage in Calvin, and he's using this terminology here to describe a specific aspect of uh, how we talk about salvation. So he wants us, I think, by that language to say uh, it is a, an instrumental cause in the sense of somehow of eternal life, meaning eternal life is not the same as justification, but Justification is something that brings us to eternal life, but justification is inseparably connected to sanctification, and sanctification's instrument, the means by which you become holy, is through obedience. And that obedience is the way in which you become holy, and since holy people are those that have eternal life, Calvin is not afraid to say that good works are instrumental cause of eternal life. But because that is subordinate to justification righteousness. It is not contrary to it. Because it is subordinate to justification, and it is all of grace, it is not meritorious. What it is is descriptive of the Holy Spirit's wonderful complex of grace that he gives to his people in its logically ordered structure that has its ultimate goal of eternal life. So when you put it together in his package, Calvin would say, of course, justification is by faith alone, and that's why we're going to get eternal life. But the people that God justifies, he also gives the Holy Spirit to, so they get sanctified. And the way sanctification proceeds in time is through good works. And it's the person who's justified and sanctified and does good works that gets to heaven. And therefore, derivatively, there's a place to say that good works is moving us in the direction of eternal life, but never meritoriously, never in any way to be contrary to Christ's righteousness. It's always subordinately, derivatively, and yet inseparably connected because it's all part of this duplex gratiam of redeeming grace. And Calvin says, I happen to think this instrumental causation language that's known for the medieval context is appropriate to describe it in this passage.
So Calvin did it. I didn't do it. Maybe I didn't get him exactly <laughs> right. But you know what? I think I understand it. I think that was what he was trying to say. Well, we want to. So th- bottom line is, are, are men saved by their good works? No. Can men be saved without good works flowing through their gift from the Holy Spirit? No. Mm-hmm. Right. In other right. words, if you look to good works, then you can't be saved. But if you say they're irrelevant, then you've missed the whole point of what it means to have the Holy Spirit yes. making you a new man. Right. Well, Dr. Loback, we really want to thank you for joining us. We're, gonna, we're about out of time, and we need to let you go. Um, this has been excellent, and we encourage people to pick this book up. You can get The Binding of God. Uh, it's published by Baker Academic in the U.S. and Paternoster. I also want to point people back to the website. If you visit reformedforum.org, you can find... Uh, Links to our other programs, find information on how to contact us as well as being able to get uh, today's bibliography and uh, and a calendar of uh, coming events. And there's a lot coming up. We're in the conference season. So you check the website and you'll be able to see what's going on and you'll be able to be informed. We want to thank everybody for listening and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.